Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be going through 10 different reasons why you should become Catholic. Now these are pretty much just aimed at Protestants. Um, If you're not a Protestant, if you're not a Christian of any type, then um, maybe I could come up with some reasons why one ought to be a Christian in general. And then if you don't believe in God at all, um, maybe a future episode could be 10 reasons or, I don't know, five reasons, some amount of reasons to be a theist. And I think those would be fun too. But we do have a fair amount of Protestant listeners, and we're happy for all of them. Um, I was Protestant for the vast majority of my life, and I learned a lot in the Protestant church. However, I left, and I left for a reason, because there are a lot of amazing things which you only find in the Catholic Church. And I'm going to go through 10 of these, my top 10 reasons to be Catholic. And of course, feel free to share these with your friends, with other people who are investigating the faith. And if you have any questions about these, if you have any counter-arguments, really any comments, or even any hate mail, I really feel like I've arrived. If I start getting hate mail, um, then send it my way at uh, thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. So the number one reason, as one may have guessed, is the Eucharist. So in the beginning, the plan was to have God and man in communion. The special place of communion was called the Garden of Eden. Now the promise that this relationship with God and one's neighbor would extend forever was was. Uh, was affirmed by the presence of the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of life. Because if you eat of it, you'll live forever. So again, the plan from the start was to have a meal from a tree that was eaten in communion with God and neighbor, which granted us eternal life. Right? That's the stage here. So what does the Eucharist do? Well, we eat it in communion. We call it a communion meal. We eat it with God, just like they ate the meal with Mount, at Mount Sinai in the presence of God. We eat it with God because Christ is present in the Eucharist. And being Christ's body, it is that which hung from a tree for the sake of our, uh, for the sake of our sins so that we could have eternal life. It is bringing back the tree of life, the meal which grants us eternal life. Now, the story of Joseph, uh, and by the way, I have a three-part episode just on the Eucharist, so I'm just going to be pulling a few arguments here. Um, But one of my favorite is the story of Joseph. So Joseph is one of the best types of Christ in all of Scripture. Now, he uh, is presumed to have died. Of course, Jesus actually did. He descends into the pit, which mirrors Christ's um, descent into, um, into the earth and ultimately descent into hell. Then he is found alive again, ascends to the right hand of the ruler, in that case Pharaoh, in Christ's case God himself, and from there he saves his people. Oh, oh, what's that? How does he save his people? Well, you may have guessed. He sends them out bread to save them. Now, in one of Joseph's dreams, the one that got all of his, his brothers very upset at him, he says that he saw a stalk of wheat rise up in the field. Rise up. Literally, if it, if it was Latin, it would be resurrect, to stand up again. So it resurrects, it stands up again. And then all of the other sheaths of wheat come and bow down to it. So why do you think these sheaths of wheat were bowing down? Well, 
approximately is because Joseph will go to this exalted position and send them this bread that saves them. But ultimately, this is a picture of Jesus Christ, who he is like the, 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 the wheat which, which dies only to stand up again, to resurrect. And then we come and bow down before him. But remember, in this dream, what is seen? Well, what's seen is wheat. But what is it? What is the meaning of it? Who is this stock of wheat? Well, in this case, it's Joseph. And ultimately, it's Christ. So in the Eucharist, what do we see? Well, we see wheat, in this case, in the form of bread. Okay, what is it? Who is it? What's the fulfillment of the dream of Joseph? It's the one who's resurrected. It's Jesus Christ. It's a who, not a what, not an it. But not only does the Eucharist mirror the story of Joseph, but also, probably most importantly, it mirrors the Passover meal. I have a very simple argument for this. Premise one, the Passover lamb must be eaten. That's straight from Exodus 12, 7 through 10. Premise two, Jesus is our Passover lamb. It's explicitly stated in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Conclusion, Jesus must be eaten. John 6, 30 through 59. Did you catch that? That's pretty clear. Do you accept that the Passover lamb must be eaten? That's pretty darn clear. Do you accept Jesus is our Passover lamb? Did you hear Christ's words in John 6? All of this is quite clear, but maybe not clear enough. What's this bread and wine stuff after all? Well, hearken back to Melchizedek, one of the most mysterious people in all of, all of Scripture. Now, we learn a little bit more about him in Hebrew, so I'm going to assume that you understand a bit about him, a bit of the context. So premise one, Christ is both the priest and the sacrifice. That's explicitly stated in Scripture, of course. Premise two, Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Straight out of Hebrews. Premise three, Melchizedek's sacrifice was in the form of bread and wine. You can consult Genesis for that one. Conclusion, we're putting these three together. Jesus' sacrifice of himself is in the form of bread and wine. Now, if all this isn't enough, Jesus was born in a manger. What's a manger? It's a feeding trough. He was born in Bethlehem. What's Bethlehem mean? It means house of bread. And as we discussed earlier, he's hung on a tree, giving his body as the, the fruit of the tree of life, which gives us eternal life. And of course, John 6 makes this quite explicit. I won't read it here, but I invite you to go and read it yourself with an open mind. But maybe we're understanding all this wrong, right? Maybe we're interpreting it differently. Well, how did the communities which you know, knew Jesus, knew the apostles, how did they understand this teaching? Well, unanimously, they understood that the Eucharist was, in fact, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. We believe this as Catholics, Eastern um, Catholics believe this too, the Eastern Orthodox believe this. All of the oldest churches, all, see this as an apostolic teaching. So if you accept the Eucharist, which you definitely should, this is going to narrow down your choice of churches pretty significantly. So let's look at a few options other than Catholicism. Well, let's start with the Lutherans, because um, they're going to be the quickest here. They don't believe in transubstantiation. They believe in what's called consubstantiation, meaning it doesn't change from one substance to another, right? Trans, 
Instead, it, it is both. It's consubstantial. So they believe that Christ is really present and the bread is really present. The problem is that's just metaphysically impossible and a little bit metaphysically ignorant because you're making two contradictory claims about the same thing. You're saying it is two different, mutually exclusive things at the same place, in the same time, in the same way. That's not possible. So consubstantiation is, um, I just think, a, a that one's off the table, guys. And maybe we can go into the depth if you guys have specific questions about why we shouldn't accept consubstantiation. But I think it should be pretty accessible to reason that saying that the same thing is two different things at the same time in the same way, uh, that's just illogical. But what about the Anglicans? Well, they don't have a valid priesthood. Now, of course, I'm sure they say they do, um, but the Catholic Church says they don't. Now, you might say, well, of course the Catholic Church would disparage other people's priesthoods. We, we would expect nothing less, but not so fast. Um, the Catholic Church accepts that the Orthodox have valid priests. We accept that the Orthodox have valid sacraments, the Eucharist included. Um, but wouldn't it give you pause to know that the oldest church thinks that the Anglican church does not have a valid priesthood? And also, the Orthodox have no dog in this fight. Um, nevertheless, it's pretty split about what they think about the Orthodox priests. Again, the Orthodox are the other oldest church. And it should give us pause to think that the other oldest church doubts the priesthood of the Anglicans. So if it's true that Christ is really present in the bread and wine in the Eucharist, wouldn't you want to have confidence that you're going to a church that really has the authority to confect the Eucharist? Or would you really want to hinge all this on just your best guess about the Anglicans? I would add that much of the Anglicanism was not shaped through, by the apostles. It was, you know, 1,500 years too late for that. But it was shaped politically. And I don't think there's any guarantee that that is a means of arriving at truth. In fact, most would probably say it's the opposite. Next, although the Catholic Church was ultimately founded by Christ through the apostles in one unbroken chain, the Church of the Anglicans was birthed out of a divorce. Um, it was birthed because of a sin. So it would seem very strange that they would be the fullness of truth when they're so late in time politically um, inter intertangled, and they were, they were generated out of, out of a refusal to accept the traditional understanding of marriage and its indissolvability. So I think we can rule out the Anglicans. I think we can rule out the Lutherans. Now, there's a much tougher one to rule out, admittedly, and that's the Orthodox. Now, this is not going to be a, a full treatment of why we shouldn't be Orthodox. That's a much longer podcast. But I'm going to just deal with a few things. One, since we're in the context of the Eucharist, um, I think it helps to look at the way they do this and the way that we do this as, as Catholics, or at least Roman Catholics. I think the Eastern Catholics do it the same way the Orthodox do. And that is the use of leavened bread. Now, they would argue that leaven can represent Christ in the gospel. And that's true, but it can also represent sin. I think from a biblical standpoint, these kind of cancel out. Um, I think the reason why we ought to use unleavened bread is because it's in line with the tradition of the Passover, because the Eucharist is our new feast of unleavened bread. So it seems the Orthodox changed 
and the Catholics did not. Now, the Orthodox make a big to-do about how they are actually the ancient faith, but I think this is a, a clear um, example of where they were the ones who diverged from what the church had historically done. And I would also point out that groups that reject the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist share in the Orthodox use of leavened bread. So I, I don't think this is definitive. And again, as I've said before, the Roman Catholic Church does accept the validity of the um, Orthodox sacraments. It does not destroy the sacrament to use leavened bread. But I think that that's an example of where they're wrong. But a much bigger one, and um, one which deserves much more time, is what's called the filioque. So in the creed, we, we added in the Latin church, um, this, the spirit proceeds from the father filioque, or and the son. So we believe that the Holy Spirit, yes, pours forth from the father, of course, but it also comes from the son. Now, the orthodox understanding is that it proceeds from the father and it subsists or comes to rest in the son. Now, we would agree that, yes, it comes to rest in the Son, but that's not all. Now, for this one, it gets a little bit metaphysically thick, and I, I do fall on the side of the Catholics, of course. However, especially for our Protestant listeners, let me just read you something, and you can tell me who you think is right. This is from John twenty twenty two. When he, Jesus, had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit breathed on them, that is, respirated, right? Um, that comes from the, the, the root of spirit or breath. So this is him breathing out the Holy Spirit. So why can't we then say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? We see it right there in Scripture. And there are many other things where the Orthodox and the um, Latin Church disagree, um, and personally, I have yet to fall on the Orthodox side of any of those. Now, some matter, and some matter much less. And I think we gave an example of one which is very important and one which is less so. So there you go. You have a couple options. Lutherans are out. Anglicans are out. The Orthodox Church is out for reasons that I haven't completely explained, um, but deserves another podcast. If you ended up Orthodox and you're listening to this, I would not cry myself to sleep. You're pretty darn close. You're in schism. It's a problem. Um, but it's a lot better than the other ones. Um, so this is the biggest one, and we're dealing with, with this one the most. Why is it so important? Why is it so important, uh, transubstantiation, that Christ is really literally present um, in the form of bread and wine? Well, as Catholics, and Orthodox for that matter, we worship the Eucharist. Yes, you heard that right. We worship the Eucharist as God because Christ is really present there, and Christ is God. So if we're wrong about this, the church historically for thousands of years across the entire world um, has been guilty of terrible idolatry. In fact, the church has said in one council, I think it might have been Vatican I, Vatican II, that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian faith. So if we have made something that's not God the source and summit of our faith, then we are deeply guilty of idolatry. However, 
This goes the other way, too. If you reject the Eucharist and you're wrong, and the historic church is right, that it is, in fact, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, then you are guilty of being an antichrist. Well, why, you say? Well, because Scripture lays out a definition. Anybody who rejects Christ come in the flesh is an antichrist. That's the spirit of the antichrist, guys. So, sure, maybe you don't reject Christ come in the flesh um, in the first century. But if the Eucharist is truly the flesh of Christ and you're rejecting it, then you're guilty of the same sin. So either we're all idolaters or you are antichrists. This is really a hinge issue that you need to understand. So go back, listen to those three episodes. I don't think anybody can listen to those three with an open mind and come out with some symbolic Protestant new, and dare I say it, man-made doctrine of the Eucharist. I think instead you'll find yourself in the Catholic position. Which brings us to our next reason. Number two reason you should become Catholic is Mary. Let me ask you this. If somebody separated you from your physical mother at birth and never told you anything about them, um, it, it all remained a mystery. Maybe they said, I don't know, they were just like an ordinary person who just you know happened to have you. It's, it, you really don't need to ever meet them. Um, no. In fact, you, you want to honor them in respect. Cool your jets. No. And separated you from the love of your physical mother, from being with your physical mother, knowing about your physical mother? What would that person be? Well, that's a really evil act. That is a villainous, awful act. Well, let me ask you this. What if somebody separated you from your, uh, your spiritual mother? Well, that's what the Protestant church has done. Because Mary is your mother if you are baptized. Why, you ask? Well, when you're baptized, Scripture says you are baptized into the body of Christ. So, the body of Christ. Was that birthed by Mary? Hmm? Yes, it was. So, if Mary is Christ's mother, we are installed into the body of Christ that makes Mary your mother. And separating her from you is an act of evil. The Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church do not do that. They encourage you to honor Mary. Why? Why would we do this? Well, simply put, because Christ did. It's a commandment, the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. Well, who do you think fulfilled these commandments better than anyone else? Well, Jesus, of course. So what do you think Jesus did? Well, obviously, he honored his mother. And he fulfilled that commandment better than anyone has ever done. And we are to follow in his footsteps. So what are we to do? We're to honor Mary. Does your church do that? I don't think they do it as much as Jesus did. Let me put something else out there. Do you remember the words that Jesus spoke from the cross? He, he said a few and each one is unbelievably theologically significant. These were only spoken by pushing himself up from the nails with great pain, taking a breath, and speaking to those that were at the base of the cross. So when Jesus looks at John and says, Behold your mother, 
What is he saying? Was this a last minute thought? Oh no, there's nobody to take care of my mother. Um, who, who, who's around? Oh, there's John. Hey, John, could you uh, take care of Mary? I, I really forgot to kind of figure this whole thing out before, you know, I was, I died. Of course not. And John records it as he says to the beloved disciple, he's taking himself out and putting you in. Because if you follow Christ, you are one of his beloved disciples. So Christ's words from the cross were not just some historical detail about who would take care of an aged Mary. No, they're about you. They reflect Mary's role in your spiritual life. Next, um, prayers asking, uh, asking people to pray for you are, are not just a Catholic invention and not even close. In fact, this goes all the way back to Judaism. Now, we see this reflected in the gospel itself. For instance, the Jews had a shrine to Rachel, who is viewed as the spiritual mother of the nation, and they would ask her intercession. Now, the gospel actually affirms that she was praying. It says, behold, a voice in Ramah crying out and refusing to be comforted. So that's where Rachel's shrine was, and I believe is to this day, because she was on her way to Bethlehem. So she stopped a little bit outside of there. So this is, uh, oh, and, ooh, well, we'll get more into that later about the saints and prayer and stuff. That's like reason number seven or something. Um, but we'll, we'll just stop right there. If your church doesn't believe we can ask intercession from Mary, uh, that's a big problem, because that's one of Mary's roles, is to listen to the concerns of the people and bring them to the king. Because in, 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 the, in Israel, the mother of the king is the queen. Because oftentimes kings had many wives, which, by the way, isn't recommended. Um, but they only have one mother, it's only possible. So Bathsheba was the mother of Solomon. And you can read in um, the way that Solomon... Um, uh, honors Bathsheba. And again, I have a podcast just on Mary, or at least an episode. So look back a few, and you can hear more about that. But she has a special role in carrying our concerns. And you'll see Bathsheba doing this. And you also see some uh, people like Queen Esther doing exactly this, saving their people by bringing the concerns of the people um, up to the king. So that's what Mary's role is. And I'm Pretty sure she's good at it. So feel completely comfortable asking prayers from Mary. And again, that other episode, I work through an entire Hail Mary, and I talk about how this is, this is scriptural, this is theologically accurate, and anybody ought to be able to pray this. The next is, ask yourself if your church would honor the Ark of the Covenant more than Mary. Or maybe it, maybe it does. We would all agree that the Ark of the Covenant is holy, Right? It housed the actual presence of God. Well, does your church call Mary holy? Because Mary was specifically made to hold the presence of God incarnate. So why on earth would you, would you care more about a box made of wood and gold than the very place of the incarnation, Mary? That, that seems like a pretty big incongruity in typical Protestant theology. And let me say something else about the the Ark. If you know much about the Ark of the Covenant, there's, there's a box, right? And in that box is three things. There's the tablets, there's the rod of Aaron, and there's a jar of manna. Now, these, of course, picture Christ. 
the the law because um, Christ is the actual word of God, the logos. So he's literally the word of God. Um, there's the staff of Aaron, which um, came back to life. Why? Because Jesus literally resurrected. And then there's the manna, which was the food that came down from heaven. Why? Because Jesus literally came down from heaven to be our food. On top of the ark, there are, are two, um, two cherubim, and uh, they have their, their wings stretched towards each other. And then there's the mercy seat right in between. That's the very place where on Yom Kippur, the, the, uh, the, the, the priest would make atonement for the sins of all people. That's the very place of atonement. All right. So let me ask you, where else do we see this Ark of the Covenant reappear in salvation history? Well, I would say at the cross. Because where is the literal place where our sins are forgiven, where God's grace is given to mankind? What's well, the body of Christ on the cross? What are to either side? Well, thieves with their arms spread out in the shape of the angels of the cherubim. Because, the, and well, I'm getting ahead of myself. What's at the base? What's at the base of this? Well, in the Old Testament, it was this Ark of the Covenant, the thing that's made to carry the presence of, of, of God. What's at the base of the cross? You guessed it. Mary, the new Ark. So there we go. For all to see, Calvary's Hill, God recreates the Day of Atonement, Christ as a mercy seat, the thieves as the cherubim, and Mary as the Ark of the Covenant. If that doesn't tell you that Mary is important in salvation history, I really don't know what would. And finally, this whole Catholics worship Mary thing is just a bunch of bogus propaganda, and I don't have a terrible amount of patience for it. Um, coming from the Protestant world to the Catholic world, it was amazing how many just straight-up lies that I encountered. And that kept me out of the church for a long time, hearing a lot of misinformation. Um, yeah, so don't believe the propaganda. Look into what the church itself says about itself, not what other people who are detractors of the church say that the Catholic Church supposedly believes. So if you have understandings about what the, the Catholic Church believes about Mary, I would ask you to question how you know. Instead, why don't you look at scripture? Instead, why don't you look about at what the church itself teaches, what the early church fathers teach? All right, so that's reason number two, because we have it right on Mary. She is your mother, and you ought to, um, to, um, to uh, act like Christ, to act like Christ and honor Mary as he did. Next reason is you can know things with confidence. This is one of the main reasons that I entered the church. I realized there were a lot of philosophical um, disagreements. And I asked myself, how could I ever solve these? I would have to become a philosopher myself, and not just any philosopher, but one so great, so wise, so educated, that I could adjudicate between all the other uh, philosophical schools and know which one's right. I would have to become a theologian. And again, I would have to be such a great theologian that I could adjudicate. Well, was Calvin right? Was Luther right? Was Augustine right? Was Aquinas right? I'd have to stand above them as a judge. 
I'd have to become a historian because many of these things are historically rooted. Well, what actually happened in the Great Schism? Well, what actually happened in the Reformation? Well, who is right here? What was going on? And I'd have to be the best historian there was to stand above them all. Well, I'd have to know languages of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, throw in some Latin there too. Um, but I only speak English, um, and I, I would need to be a Bible scholar, but not any Bible scholar, right? But in the Catholic Church, we can actually work cooperatively. We can build on each other. We can come to a learning which is, is reverencing the tradition of people who have gone before. Um, we believe that the church actually has teaching authority. And guess what? So do you. If you accept the, uh, the scripture as it has been assembled, then you are de facto accepting the Catholic Church's authority to choose which things happen to be scripture and which things are not. And we'll get into the deuterocanonical books soon. Um, I'd also say that you, you accept a lot of the church's authority on the Trinity, the hypostatic union, the creeds, and other things. You didn't invent these for yourself. You inherited them, and you're glad that you did. You don't have to recreate Christianity every single generation. Now, there definitely ought to be a forthcoming episode just about papal authority and about the uh, teaching of the magisterium and whatnot. But before you say, this is something I could never accept, let me just tell you, there's something like 46 different authors of the Bible. You do know they were all infallible when they were writing scripture. So you already accept like 46 different people have been preserved from error by the power of the Holy Spirit across, what was that, a thousand years or something the Bible was written? Um, yeah, this is something you already accept. If you didn't, then how on earth could you accept scripture? So the claim of the church is not that they are on par with the writers of the uh, Old and New Testament. It's even more modest than that. It's just that when they teach from Scripture and what's been passed down directly by the apostles, and when they teach authoritatively such that all Christians will be bound to believe it, they can't mess it up. That's it. As far as the Pope's ability to do this, to my knowledge, this has happened, I think, two, maybe three times in 2,000 years. That's it. Most of the time, it's an ecumenical council. So it's all the churches get together and decide on something. Um, oh, more on that later. But there you go. You can know things with confidence. You don't have to make up everything yourself. You don't have to rely on yourself. Um, because if you're like me, you're not a scholar in these areas. You're not the smartest person who's ever lived. You don't have time to even do these things. And it makes sense that God would actually give us an institution that we can trust. All right. Number four, you get, you know what? We're going to back up one more point here. The whole goal of this is so that we never have to choose between unity and truth and just unity with the body of Christ in general. You never have to say, well, the church is wrong, but I guess I still have to be a part of it because, you know, God did pray that we would be one as he and the father are one. And uh, I, I don't want to be broken off from the church. No, truth and the, the visible hierarchy of the church will be in the same place, and that can give us confidence. Um, yes, I wish I could go way more in depth, but we have a bunch more points. You get more Bible. Isn't that a perk? As Protestants, who doesn't love the Bible? And you get a few extra books. And by the way, those books are really wicked awesome. 
Um, Jesus and the apostles were chiefly quoting from the Septuagint. And you know what the Septuagint included? You guessed it, the Deuterocanonical books. And by the way, the Deuterocanonical books are not the same as the Apocrypha. Like the Book of Enoch, you probably heard of that one. That's not one of the Deuterocanonical books. Um, the Catholic Church rejects that one and some others that you may have heard of. I do have a challenge here. If you're a Protestant who believes these aren't Scripture, go to the Book of Wisdom, turn to chapter 2, read it, and come back. Then I dare you to tell me that this is not Scripture. You're in for a surprise. Go and check it out. Next, these books were written right before Christ. And this is where Greek philosophy and Jewish revelation started to meet. And, and, and it kind of set the stage for the coming of Jesus. So we get a few things in, let's see, Sirach and some other books, which outlined this being, this logos, which, by the way, is a Greek word, a Greek term from Greek philosophy. But it's being imported into the, the Jewish tradition and linked with revelation. And this logos somehow existed from all eternity with God. And it, they weren't sure, but they thought, well, maybe this is God, but there seems to be a distinction from God. But again, these are avowed monotheists, so making sense of this was quite difficult. But we're starting to set the stage for probably the best intro ever. In beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, right? John's famous prologue comes out of this Jewish-Greek understanding, which is being developed in the Deuterocanonical books so go read them. The Trinity didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of that, that rich tradition. Next point, you get the saints. Oh, I know. I'm doing a terrible job just bouncing back. As soon as I announce the next one, I'm like, oh, there's more to add. Read the Maccabees. It's super cool. It's an action-packed book. So you also get that one. That's fun. All right, the saints. That's reason number five why you should be Catholic. So, Prayer to saints goes back to Judaism. Heck, modern Jews still ask for prayers from Elijah. And if you don't believe that that was contemporary with Christ, look no further than the crucifixion account, where people surrounding him, who were Jews, thought that Jesus was doing just that. They were asking, is he crying out to Elijah? Well, look at that. So we have this tradition of calling out to the righteous dead for their intercession and help, even recorded in Scripture. So in the case of Rachel, in the case of Elijah, this crucifixion. But that's not all. Because you remember those books that I talked about earlier, the ones which were removed by the Protestants, which were historically part of the canon? Um, yeah, you can find Jeremiah seen after his death. And guess what he's doing? You guessed it. He's praying. So there it is. We literally have an eyewitness account, believe us in the Maccabees, of Jeremiah praying after his death. Also, we have in the regular Old Testament, Samuel, when, he's, when his spirit is called up by Saul in the Witch of Endor, he's conscious after death. He's awake. He's also aware of the stuff going on in earth. And by the way, that's in the Old Testament prior to Christ going down and, uh, and releasing the, the souls of, of the dead who were trapped in, in Sheol. Um, so how much more in the afterlife could one do this? Also, in the book of Revelation, we see people offering prayers up to God while they are in heaven. And by the way, no part of the body can say to another part of the body, I have no need of you. So we actually need those in heaven. Need them, need them for what? Well, how about prayer? Um, 
And I'll add that the saints not only pray for us, as they are in fact described as the great cloud of witnesses, and what do witnesses do? They they pray, or they witness. <laughs> um, they might pray, you never know. Um, so the great cloud of witnesses witness us, and it also says that it's as if we are running a race and they have finished first. So what are they doing? They're cheering us on. They're intending us to finish. And of course, they're in the presence of Christ. So of course, they're praying for us. That's something that's rejected by the Protestant tradition by and large, and it really shouldn't be. And next, the lives of the saints are something we ought to study. And if you think that's foreign, like, oh, we should just study Christ, well, you're just flat wrong. Because Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we should imitate holy, righteous people as they imitate Christ. Because we understand through the Gospels what it's like to live as Christ in the first century as a Jew um, in years 30 through 33 while starting up a messianic ministry. That's not super applicable to our life. So the whole goal of Christianity is that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is reproduced in you. But we're still on the way. There are people in salvation history, like St. Paul, who were imitating Christ. So we get to see what would it be like if, say, Christ's life was lived through, I don't know, a bishop in the 6th century, or a king in the 12th century, or a, a farmer in the, in the 1400s. So we get to see Christ's love broken through the prison of many of his different creations. And that can clue us in on how we can live. So let me ask you, make this a wee bit pointed. If this is what has been passed down from the time of the apostles, and I assure you it has been, if this is what's actually present all the way back in Judaism, and it was, if this is even affirmed by Scripture, and I've referenced a few places already, what kind of church would separate you from this? You have friends in heaven cheering you on, praying for you. You can ask them to pray. You can extend the bonds of love that you extend on earth, asking other people to share your burdens, um, asking other people to pray for you. You can extend that to people in heaven, in the very presence of God. We know that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Well, who's more righteous? Your friend Billy Bob here on earth? Or somebody who has been perfected in righteousness and is in heaven? I think it's the latter. No offense to Billy Bob. All right. Confession. So, a few things on the table, and this won't be a thorough defense. We believe there's three types of contrition, or being repentant or sorry for what you did. Perfect, imperfect, and defective. Perfect contrition will be you have committed some type of sin and you are entirely and fully sorry for what you have done, not out of fear of hell, not out of you know loss of good things and this and that, just because you know who God is and you know you have offended your relationship with him. Um, some of us do that. It's possible. Now, if you have perfect tr contrition, and you, you um, repent before God in this way, your sins are cleared, done. Doesn't, you don't need a priest, you're just, that's done. It's like the way that David did it after committing all sorts of terrible mortal sins like adultery, murder. It was perfect contrition that made him again right with God. And this is not an act we can do because mortal sin, the sins that lead to death as 
the letter of John, John 2, I think, look that one up, guys, um, refers to it as. These sins, they, they kill our soul. The divine life is, is no longer in us. Um, so it's only an act of God that can bring us to perfect contrition. There's also defective contrition, where you say, meh, not really that sorry for what I did, but, you know, I don't know, whatever, sorry, God. You're not forgiven. <laughs> like, that's, that's not enough. You're not actually repentant. You're, that's defective. So what do we do for this in-between case? Imperfect contrition. Because guess what? That's where you probably are most of the time after your sin. There's no miracle of grace which moves your soul completely and entirely to perfect contrition. Maybe there is, and I hope there is, and I pray there is. Though John, um, you know, Second John would say that don't even pray for mortal sins. Um, but that's a whole different topic. So imperfect contrition is where we most are. And the goal of the sacrament of confession or reconciliation, as it's sometimes known, is to fill in this gap with grace. Is to take what we can offer to God, which is imperfect, and pair it with what God offers to us through his church to make it perfect. So it clears these sins, even though we're not perfectly repenting. So how do we know that the church has the power to forgive sins? Well, it's a power that was given to the apostles. Remember that part about Jesus breathing on the apostles? He goes on to say that he's giving them the power to forgive sins. Now, how was that understood? Was that just Oh, yeah, well, everybody can forgive sins. Well, of course not. And the, the church has never understood it that way. You can't find a single person who thinks that that was just some big universal. And that would be pretty weird if Jesus breathes on the Holy Spirit to them and tells them, hey, you now have a power that, you know, everybody has and you already had, actually. So this is a new thing. It's the power to bind and loose, the power to forgive sins. Um, and who's forgiving sins? The apostles? No, not really. It's the Holy Spirit that was breathed on them. Well, sure, on them, but they don't really have that today. Like people in the line of the apostles don't have that. Well, not so fast. Paul says that through the laying on of hands in ordination, um, the Holy Spirit is passed from one to another. So there it is. So why can a priest forgive your sins today? Well, technically speaking, he can't, right, in a way. But because the Holy Spirit has been passed on to him, ultimately from Christ, breathing it on those first apostles. And because your priest is in the line of the apostles, and of course he can actually show you that if you ask him, um, then he can speak the words of Christ, the words of absolution, and your sins will be forgiven. Um, so does this apostolic office, does this role actually continue? Yeah, go and check out, I think it's for, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The office of the apostle is the highest in the church, and it is an office which continues. Now, another big perk of confession is you get grace, not just that covers your sin, but strengthens you against those sins. And as a convert, I can tell you there's a big difference. Ask any, any convert, any one of them if they think there's a difference between when they repented for a sin as a Protestant and when they go to confession. It's, it's night and day, all right? I can tell you this stuff works. I've tried to repent of different sins, and I have. Um, it, it, confession's on another level. This does something in your soul which is, is actually different. Um, and not only that, it's just a wonderful, helpful, beautiful practice where we get the objective knowledge of Christ's forgiveness as pronounced by his church. All right, number seven reason why you ought to be Catholic. 
because you get to worship the way that God wants to be worshiped. Now, it's this common fad to say, oh, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. I don't really believe in organized religion, blah, 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 blah. Here's the thing. Read the Old Testament. If you doubt for one minute that God cares about the way that he is to be worshiped, jump into some Leviticus. Read some numbers. He cared about the rings that the poles went through to pick up the ceremonial uh, furniture inside of the tabernacle. He cared about the colors, the size, the dimensions, everything about his tabernacle he cared about. Look look at the, the garments of the priests, how they're described. Just just flip through the Old Testament and see how God is setting up worship and tell me that God doesn't care about the way that he is to be worshipped. Of course he does. So it's selfish to say, well, I want to go to a church that I like, that I enjoy, that feeds me, that nourishes me, 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 me. Listen, that's all well and good. That's fine. But your chief concern in worshipping God is to put God first, to worship God the way that God wants to be worshipped, not the way that you want to worship him. So how does the Catholic Church worship God? Well, in the way that was taught by the apostles. Read Justin Martyr's description of the Mass from, I think, 160? So what, like, uh, you know, not too many, maybe 100 years after the, uh, the Gospels were written? Here, he describes what would be understood as a modern Catholic Mass. So from the beginning, we had a way that we worshipped that was taught to the apostles by Jesus himself— God lays out the way that he wants to be worshipped. At the center of it, you guessed it, is reason number one, the Eucharist. So being Catholic allows you to worship correctly. So if you've ever been to a Catholic Mass, you probably thought, well, this is terrible. I, I, I don't see how this is what God would want. And you're right, we're fallen human beings and we probably do a terrible job. Um, but a lot of the reason that you probably weren't too enthused is it didn't catch your attention with the with the worship songs. It didn't draw you in in this way and that way. It, it didn't do what you expected as a Protestant. But here's the thing. We teach that the Mass is a sacrifice. Now, does it re-sacrifice Jesus? No, of course not. That's, no. <laughs> um, but what it does is it represents the sacrifice of Christ to the Father once more. Now, sacrifices aren't pretty. Sacrifices aren't fun. Sacrifices don't make you feel all warm and fuzzy. When in the Old Testament, they, they bring a, uh, the Passover lamb uh, to the temple to be killed. Um, that really was the way that they were being made right with God. But they had to take this little lamb that lived in their home and slit its throat and have its blood pour into a bowl. And the priest would then collect that blood. They carried this back, butchered the lamb, and ate it. It was ugly. It was not fun. It was not enjoyable. It was participating in a sacrifice. And why? Because God commanded it. Because that is actually best for us. Now, we might not think so, but a child might think that sugar and cookies are best for it because it tastes the best. When in fact, that may or may not be true. So we might think that all the fun music and preaching and this and that, that's really what's best for us. But God doesn't think that's true. He thinks that participating in the sacrifice, 
the sacrifice of the mass is what's intended. Number, number eight, you can recite the creed with honesty and you can recite it in line with the intention of the authors. So the Nicene Creed has been used as the, or I guess it's technically the Nicene Constantinopoline Creed, has been used as a line dividing truth from heresy. It's something that most Protestant denominations say that they agree with. So let's hold you to it. Let me read it. I believe in one God. Whoop, stop right there. The Catholic understanding of God includes divine simplicity. Everything that is in God is God. His essence is his existence. You may or may not know what I'm talking about, but let me point something out. William Lane Craig and other Protestants um, who, are, who are philosophers, many of them, reject divine simplicity, reject the classical theistic understanding of who God is and his intrinsic oneness. They believe in what's called divine personalism, which does make distinctions inside of God, such that God has at least metaphysical parts. But that's impossible because then God's dependent on his parts or God's dependent on the principle that um, brings his parts into unity. But God's not dependent on anything. Everything's dependent on God. Instead, God is one simple, undivided substance. So that's a problem. Further, people like Craig believe that God is not eternal in the way that we understand eternality. But instead, he believes that at the moment of creation, God entered into time. But no, God does not enter into this type of context as if the context can be more fundamental than he. Everything ultimately depends on God. It's true that the person of Christ, he entered in time, sure. And we have pretty dense theology and philosophy about just that. But the one God, the Trinitarian God that we worship, is and will always be eternal in the fullest sense of the word. So, when you say, I believe in one God, I suspect that you would like to be in line with the classical understanding of this God, the one that's rooted all the way back in God's words in Exodus. I am the I am. In other words, well, divine simplicity. His essence, his what isness, is his existence, his isness. The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Well, stop again. This is committing us to a certain type of metaphysics, one which is almost entirely absent in the Protestant world. We accept four causes, material, efficient, formal, and final. I believe I've explained them elsewhere in the podcast. You can go all the way back to the Thomas Aquinas presentation and you'll get a lot of this good stuff. Um, but Protestants often reject formal and final causality. Instead, they've adopted a more materialist view where they only look at material and efficient causality. This is one of the problems that they can't fit transubstantiation into their theology. Next, I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of, the, uh, Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Okay, there's more philosophy here, which is notably absent in the Protestant world. What does it mean to be a substance? What does it mean to be consubstantial? I talked about it a little bit, but it says that Jesus and the Father are consubstantial. What does that mean? Well, you're going to have to dig into Catholic tradition to know this. That's not something which is really expounded in the Protestant faith, though it should be. And for those who do, well, good job. <laughs> Moving on. 
Through him all things were made, for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. So we talked about Mary earlier, but this is a core part of our faith, the fact that by the Holy Spirit, Christ was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. And I may add that it's taught that the material that Christ was made from was pulled from. So he is truly incarnate of the Virgin Mary. And by the way, Christ, who broke no law and fulfilled them all, also fulfills the sacrificial law, which says that if if a part of a lump of dough is used to sacrifice, the whole lump is made holy. If a part of an animal is sacrificed, the entire body of the animal is made holy. So let me ask you this. What's our sacrifice? Jesus. Where was he pulled from? Well, it says right there, incarnate of the Virgin Mary. What does that tell us about the Virgin Mary? She's holy. That's the law. Christ didn't break it. Mary didn't break it. God did not undo this. So there you go. Can, did you know that was part of the creed? Well, it is. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now go back and listen to my episode about Pontius Pilate and why this is included. I won't repeat it here. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father Philoe, or in the Son. Right? This is the main reason why you shouldn't be Eastern Orthodox, because that is true. We just read it, what, John twenty twenty two who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. Now comes the big stuff, guys. I believe in one. One? Well, wait a minute. What, what do you mean one, church? Well, the Catholic Church has one pope, one hierarchy. We confess one, one common Eucharist. Um, we, we have unity in doctrine. In what way are these other churches one? I suppose you could say that in baptism we're joined to the body of Christ. That's true. But the oneness and the unity in the Christian body is absolutely most present in the visible Catholic Church. But let's go on. Holy. Holy? So do you think your church is holy? Um, well, I suppose maybe in some respects you could try to say this. But again, holy means it's set apart for the purpose of God. So who set apart the Baptist church? Well, whoever broke off of whatever previous group and set it up. Well, who set apart the Catholic church? Well, it, it was from the apostles. It, that's who started up all the individual churches, which became known as the Catholic church. So it was set apart by God. Um, well, then the next word, Catholic you might say, whoa, 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 that just means universal. That ju just means everything. That's just a throwaway word with no content. You know, there's really no reason for that. I like what Augustine said because there were heretical groups at his time who said pretty much just what I repeated. And he would issue the challenge. If you find one of these heretical people in the streets and you ask them, excuse me, sir, can you please give me directions to the nearest Catholic church? Not one will dare to point to his own place of worship. And I think that kind of illustrates the intention of the authors of this creed, 
they did not intend to say, I believe in one, holy, you know, anybody, and apostolic church. No, Catholic means according to the whole. All right, so let's do a few tests. According to the whole church throughout history, um, the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of church. Is your church Catholic? Because that's what the whole church has said for a <laughs> pretty long time. No, it's not. Let me just give you another one. According to the whole church, the universal church, um, we have an office of, of bishop, of priest. Um, we have the sacrifice of the mass. We have the sacraments. We have the reality of confession, the necessity of the priest. Um, is your church Catholic? Is your church according to the whole? Because when the whole church is speaking like this, well, it's not speaking Baptist theology. Next up, Catholic and apostolic church. Is your church apostolic? You do know these words have meanings. It means from the apostles, ordained in the line of the apostles. So when we're talking about the church, it has to include this. Baptist Church, Methodist Church, the, the, the Presbyterians, all these groups, none of them are apostolic in origin, as founded by the apostles. The Catholic Church, yes, that's apostolic. The Orthodox, the Orthodox Church, well, yes, that's actually apostolic too. So how can you say this in seriousness if you're not part of one of those churches? If, you, if your pastor is not even a priest? And if this person has no line to the apostles? Because that's what it means. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Stop right there again. Many Protestants don't believe that baptism is a sacrament. But it's like the first sacrament. <laughs> it is the door to the rest of the spiritual life. But it says right here in the creeds that it, I, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But many Protestants baptize multiple times. That's been deemed a heresy and is against what it says right here in the creed. One baptism. And not believing in baptismal regeneration, whereby the stain of original sin is wiped away, and, and whereby all of these sins are forgiven. I mean, that's just flatly against the creed and against Scripture. So how can you be progressing the, the, the creed in all seriousness if you disagree with that so fundamentally? And I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come. Presumably, we can all agree on that. But that's a big perk. You can confess the historic creeds and actually agree with them with not importing a bunch of conditions and while actually acknowledging what the writers of the creed seeked to acknowledge. All right, next, number nine. Everything that is good from your current church is already here in the Catholic Church. Again, we started all as Catholic. Um, so every church that exists broke off from the Catholic Church. So either what it has is from the Catholic Church, or it got it from outside of the church. If it got it from outside of the church, well, that's not necessarily great. And if it got it from the church, well, then you could find that already in the church that it broke from. So let me give you a few examples. Maybe you're Presbyterian and you love the liturgical worship. Oh, yeah, we have that. Maybe you're part of a church which does a lot of charity, which serves the poor. 
Well, we're the largest charitable organization in the world. In fact, in the history of the world. Maybe you like that your church is um, uh, steadfastly standing up against the culture, standing up for truth. Guess what? The Catholic Church cannot, will not, and has never changed its opinion on abortion, euthanasia, and on things like contraception, which should be its own episode, um, all of the other churches were united at one point. Every single one of them fell away. Every single one of them caved to the culture and said, well, I guess that's fine to do contraception. Guess what church didn't cave? There's one. One church was, was not brought down by the culture, and that's the Catholic church. So if you care about your church standing up against truth, well, one of them isn't going anywhere. We've survived 2,000 years. We can keep surviving a just fine. Are you charismatic? Do you believe in the gifts of prophecy and tongues and healing and things like this that, that uh, many Protestant denominations currently deny? Well, come into the Catholic Church. Read about the lives of the saints. They're full of miraculous events. They're full of prophecies. Um, the charismatic gifts live alive and well in the Catholic Church. I've often described the charismatic movement as a rocket without fins. A lot of excitement, a lot of joy, a lot of energy. Oftentimes, the Holy Spirit authentically moving there. But what it needs is it needs the fins, the guidance, the structure of the Catholic Church. And yes, you're welcome here. Um, and I'll just add one more thing here. During the time of the Reformation, there's quite the scandal. The scandal was, at other times in history, we had vindication of new teachings with miracles. For instance, when we went from Judaism to Christianity, the miracles of Christ were proof that God was truly acting on the side of Christ. Now, up and down the, the, the centuries, when Christian missionaries would go to different places, there were miracles showing that they were vindicated in speaking the truth. So at the time of the Protestant Reformation, even the Protestants asked, and this was a very serious question. You can read it, I believe, both Calvin and Luther. Guys, where are our miracles? They affirmed that the Catholic saints indeed had miracles, that the Catholic Church had them, that they were attested for legitimately. But the Protestants in the Reformation realized that they didn't have them. And they had to go back and explain why they didn't have the stamp of approval from God at this great time of transition. And that is why a lot of them reject the charismatic gifts. Because they said, well, we're just going to call everything bogus and say it all stopped and that the Catholic Church is just lying about everything. But guys, if you're charismatic, you don't accept that line of reasoning. You do accept that Christians have, in fact, had miracles up and down the centuries. I think if you look into history, you'll see that these big times and, and changes in salvation history are indeed accompanied by miracles, and you have to explain what the Reformers could not. Why is it that the Protestant Reformation was not confirmed miraculously by God if it was legitimate? Hmm? Any, any ideas? Because they didn't. Um... All right, that brings us to number, are we at 10? Yes, we are. We are at number 10 reason why you should become Catholic if you're a Protestant. And that is that you don't know anything about Catholicism. You think you do. Um, 
But if you're anything like me, you have a host of mistaken ideas, some of which are just flat-out anti-Catholic propaganda. And you think I'm being hyperbolic. Um, I'm in the United States. Um, this was an English colony. And England fought Spain and France a lot. Spain and France are Catholic countries. So they launched a series of propaganda wars against the Catholic Church in order to solidify um, around the, uh, the English cause, even though there were some Catholics in, um, um, in, in England and Ireland, etc. So we still have a lot of these propaganda pamphlets. I'm sure you can find them online. But they launched a host of different arguments, and some of which are around today. For instance, the Catholics worship Mary. It's just propaganda. Another one is that Catholics worship idols. No, that's propaganda. It's propaganda, and we know where it's from. Um, there's also things which are just straight misunderstandings. For instance, when we say that the Pope is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra on the matters of faith and morals, well, first, you probably haven't heard those provisions that I just uttered. Did you know that the Pope has only done that, I think, two times? Maybe three? Two or three times in the history of the church, in 2,000 years, only two times. Every other time, when there's infallible decrees, it's done through an ecumenical council. And, by the way, many of those councils you already accept. If you haven't just made your own Bible, you accepted the Council of Rome, I think, that established the canon. If you haven't reworked the whole doctrine of the Trinity and the hypostatic union and all sorts of other stuff that you take for granted, well, then you're tacitly accepting those councils, too. Um, well, here's another one uh, that, that Catholics added to the Bible. Well, we touched on that. No, we didn't. Martin Luther um, wanted to remove the deuticanonical books because, in part, they support purgatory, which they do. Um, listen to that episode. You can learn more about um, the Catholic take on purgatory in a previous one. Um, because they, uh, well, they had a bunch of things which was in discord with his unique theology. Um, and he also tried to take out James and Hebrews. Luckily, his friends convinced him not to. And there are some Bibles where that's put all the way in the back. I believe some where it's even labeled Apocrypha. <laughs> so that's a big problem. We're not the ones who are adding books of the Bible. The Protestants were the ones who were taking them out. There are very good reasons why the deuticanonical books need to be there. And give them a read. I think that you can uh, identify scripture when you read it. Um, how, how about this one? Another thing that the people just don't understand. Um, the prayers that we do are vain repetitions. Well, what's vanity? Well, vanity is trying to look good in front of others. I'm sure there's times where people go and they pray in the streets and they make great repetitions and long prayers in order to get honor. Yeah, if you go and pray a rosary, um, I don't think you're going to be honored in this day and age. In fact, I promise you won't. Um, so, no, I think that's just anti-Catholic misunderstanding kind of stuff. Um, call no man father. That's clear hyperbole. If you call your dad dad, which means father, then you've called him father. If you've referred to him as your father, you've called him and father. Um, what the Catholic Church acknowledges is that in Christ, the priesthood that the priests share in, which is Christ's priesthood, is reviving the primogenitor priesthood that was lost after the golden calf incident in Exodus. So by calling priests father, we are acknowledging that Christ has gone back before that great sin of idolatry to resurrect that, um, 
the priestly system that was begun in Adam. So it's actually a really awesome thing. Um, and that's totally not what he was condemning. You can call your dad dad. So that's just an example of mistakes and half-truths and things that you may or may not believe about the Catholic Church. And I promise you there's way more. I speak from experience when I say that when I started to actually study Catholicism, I was shocked and actually a bit angry at how much I've been misled about what the church believes. So go and learn for yourself. Read the early church fathers. Read the Bible with an open mind and not just a narrow Protestant perspective. Um, yeah, I, I, th I think a lot of issues, especially things like the Eucharist and Mary, those are theological slam dunks on the side of Catholicism if you have anywhere near an open mind. And the fact that the Protestant church is wrong on those two issues, well, that should get you leaving pretty quick. All right, well, thanks for, answer, for listening to... Uh, this episode. I'm not going to answer any mailbag questions because this one went a little bit long and I feel like we were kind of covering a bunch of topics today. Um, if you have any questions about these, as I said from the top of the episode, uh, email me. And um, yeah, I did want to announce that I have a um, returning guest coming up soon. Um, I think you guys remember Paul. He's going to be talking with me about when we have to accept uh, magisterial teaching and when we don't have to. Um, and we're going to be kind of using the death penalty capital punishment debate as a way of um, examining this. And we definitely disagree on that and almost everything else. Uh, Paul's a really good guy. I would say that he tries hard to be a good, faithful Catholic. Um, however, we couldn't be more different. I'm definitely more of the conservative end, and he is more the liberal end. I am a convert, and I know a lot about Scripture, and he is a cradle Catholic and focuses almost entirely, it seems, on papal encyclicals. I refer to him as an encyclopedia. Um, he seems to know them all and off the top of his head. But he's got a lot of great information to share, and I hope you enjoy um, that upcoming episode. I think that's next week, and uh, so is the one with Trent Horn, which I think will be awesome, too. All right, we'll call it right there. Share this with your friends if you like sharing. Um, share this with your, with your enemies as well, especially if you didn't like it. Um, and yeah, if you have a Protestant friend, have them listen to this. And um, we, uh, we're, we're all baptized believers, but that doesn't mean that there's not some pretty awesome stuff on the, uh, the other side of the River Tiber. So swim on over and I'll see you guys for the next episode.